Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we're in the middle, or we just started actually, the third unit, which speaks about the attitude towards Agadah today. And we're going through, we start like sort of from the end. We looked at the Hazonish, which represents the uh, the Litvak or the or the, the called ultra orthodox, but even spilling a little bit into the modern orthodox world today. And now we're going to look at the uh, at a commentary by Rabbi Yosef Misas, who's a sort of a contemporary. He passed away in 1974. Uh, was born in 1890 in uh, Meknes, in Morocco. and served many years in Algeria as rabbi also was very worldly, open-minded, uh, uh, well, well-rounded education, term meaning uh, not just Jewish studies, but also uh, grammar, history, uh, uh, philosophy, poetry, all this. And uh, at the end of his life, the last five years, he came and served as a rabbi in Haifa in Israel. And here's uh, something from his uh, um, its collection of letters, the Otsar Mikhtavim, and he says he quotes Masichtot Ktanot, extracted Sufrim. So, just uh, a side note Masichtot Ktanot, the Masichet is attracted of the Talmud. There's a collection of what are called minor tractates that appear at the end, uh, they appear at the end of the Talmud. And some people think that they are Talmudic but, or Mishnaic, but the reality is that they were written much later in the time of the Geonim. So, this is really Geonic literature, seventh. Uh, around 7th century, most probably. So, but it's written in the, either the style of the Mishnah or the Midrash. So, when you say some people think, you mean some people in like traditional community? Traditional community, scholars? yes. Okay. No scholars, no scholars. There's no question today that uh, they they're come from the, from the from the But they're text. studied as though they're Talmudic. Yes, texts. people study okay. them as their Talmudic texts. They put them at the end of the Talmud as an addendum. So we have. Okay. Right. So, um, this goes on the word. Panim befanim diber Hashem. Hashem spoke face to face. Um, so, arba'a apin. There are four faces. That's a that's a wordplay that the midrash does because it says in the Hebrew, panim befanim, and panim Two. is in the plural, even though there's no singular for panim in Hebrew. Right. In in biblical Hebrew, you don't say pan. In later Hebrew, and even today, I mean, modern Hebrew would, would use that. Pun is one face, and panim, many faces. But uh, I think here, just in, as a comment, the beauty of the, uh, the biblical Hebrew is that face is plural, because really, we don't have one face. We have many faces. There are a couple of other words like that in Hebrew. So deep meaning. So, but the, 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 this Midrashic literature says, panim befanim. Two and two, so we have four faces. What are those four faces? Panim shel ema lamikra. The Bible requires face of reverence. It's not the face that the Bible shows to us, but what we have to show the Bible, right? So it says the Bible, the Bible face of reverence. Panim benoniot lamishnah, the Mishnah balanced face, or I would say one that maintained equilibrium, whatever, or, or average 
it's hard to translate this word. Panim sochakot la Talmud, the Talmud, smiling face, the Midrash, welcoming face. It's an interesting uh, statement, right, by the by this uh, Masachet Sofrim. So these are, I'm sorry, these are our faces. That our faces that are showing to our, to these to this genre. Okay. We come to this literature we when we when we come to study Bible, we come with reverence, right? We come to the Mishnah with with equilibrium. Okay. We come to the Talmud with a smile, and we come to the Agadah with a willingness uh, uh, to welcome her or to or or acceptance. So now, in his interpretation of that, he offers a, a very concise analysis of how should we treat uh, Jewish literature, which in a way connects to the first uh, unit that we did, like the, uh, the the Jewish or the rabbinical bookcase, right? Back on Monday. <laughs> Back on Monday, right, yeah, <laughs> years ago. Um, but but, like but it is in line with his general philosophy. It's very important that he uses, uh, you could say one of the most important things that he stresses uh, consistently in his halachic literature is that you must... Uh, be aware of historical development you need to know history without history you have nothing so at one point he criti- he uh, he writes a review of a book of a of a say of a scholar who lived two or three hundred years before him and the grandchildren of the of the author published the book and he says you wrote a beautiful introduction but one um, important detail is missing w- not sorry some important details when and where did the author live he says, I cannot understand his halakha and his rulings without knowing his geographical location and in his historical uh, context. So um, now he speaks about the, this uh, uh, statement. He says, So we should approach Bible study with great reverence because it is the word of God, the creator and sovereign of the world. Whose wisdom is beyond our grasp. You have to delve into them as uh, with as much depth as possible. If you cannot find a logical explanation, so, uh, the, I translate we, until we find a logical explanation and especially the commandment where he says if you cannot find an explanation don't say this is illogical but rather say I didn't work hard enough and I have to dig deeper and um, we're not doing Tanakh now so we'll put it aside but it's interesting because he in a way uh, goes against the grain of some Midrashim which say some things you can never understand um, then he goes to the Mishnah. He says, "Panim benonim b'Mishnah." The Mishnah requires a balanced approach. Ki perush Torah shebichtav v'yesh b'ta'arovet shel svarot hatanaim misichlam utvunatam. And he says it is a commentary to the written law, and it was composed by the Tanaites who were flesh and blood, just like us. Not typical in the Orthodox world. In the Sephardic world, yes. Whether I say Sephardic are not really Orthodox the way Orthodoxy is defined today. Um, this is, you could say, he's a, we represent the Sephardic of, of the past. He says, you're allowed to criticize the Mishnah. The Mishnah were written by 
by humans. It's not prophecy, right? Stark difference. Um, you said he was um, Sephardic? Sephardic. So does that have an influence? He's Moroccan. He's a, you know, so that was different than the Ashkenazi. Yes. I'm, just, I'm yes. just wondering, that was different than Ashkenazi's approach to the Mishnah. Yes. Yes. I mean, if the if the Hazonish says that even the Midrash should be treated with uh, utmost reverence, and this is like the words of prophecy, even more so, the Mishnah, which was edited by Rebutah the Prince, who was considered a holy man, and so on and so forth. Um... And he says, Since they are human beings, It contains logical arguments and assumptions which the rabbis based on their wisdom and logic. And we can discuss their statements with logic, add, omit, and correct as necessary. This is, this is a very bold statement. I mean, I, like, we really have two extremes of within the Orthodox world, right? Is, even the Mishnah, you could... You could uh, Work with the words if if they are not logical, or maybe in today's reality we have some contradiction with scientific knowledge. Okay, so you have to reassess what's written or say again. You have to correct what's written. And he brings the proof from the Talmud that uh, we continue the work of the rabbis of the Talmud, who would say that a certain Mishnah is a, is a missing text or it's a minority opinion or that the text was corrupt, etc. Since this is a balanced approach, why? With neither reverence nor disrespect. This is how one, he understands Benoni. Benoni means respected, right? But don't bow down to it. You have the right to criticize it. Fair enough, right? Okay. Panim Sahakot La Talmud says here to the Talmud, you could all approach the Talmud with a smile, which, like in, I said yesterday, it's not the... Uh, uh, First thought in your head when you think of Talmud. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, it's more more. Most people would treat the Talmud with reverence, right? Um, within the Orthodox, we're talking about the Orthodox approach. He says, why the Talmud uh, is approached with a smile? Says we can only accept the matters which concern practical law and final decisions while rejecting all the back-and-forth argumentation, which is theoretical and has no practical application. So anyone who ever studied Talmud knows that there are a lot of dead ends in the Talmudic discussion. What about this? No, it's this. What about that? Okay. A famous sugya that is taught in the, in the, in the schools, in, in all schools, I think, I don't know why, is the chapter called Elu Metziot. Uh, the laws of finding uh, a lost object. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do with that? And there's a whole sugya that's called Yeush Shalomidat. What if you gave up on your lost object? But uh, and what if you gave? We assume that you gave up. Well, you don't know that you. Whatever. The Gemara brings twenty uh, proofs that it works, and they're all rejected in the same manner. And you say, okay, after you brought two or three sources, and I answered that they should be interpreted differently, you know not to bring any more sources, right? So, uh, because it's, it's, it's just tedious and, and tiring. So some people say, no, you needed, they needed to do that because they, they wanted to prevent a situation where in the future, people who don't know better will bring those, so they just saved us time. Rabbi Meshash says that, and he brings an example, the Rif, Rabbi Tzhak al-Fasi, 
that uh, abridged the halachot. Rabbi Tzadik Alfasi lived, I mentioned yesterday, in the turn of the millennium. And what he did was, he took the Talmud and edited it. He clipped, he took out all the non, first the non-halachic material, whatever is uh, Agada. But even from the halacha, he took the, 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 all the deliberations, the unnecessary deliberations, and he made it more accessible for people to learn. And uh, I think it's highly logical and makes sense. Because he said, okay, this was written 500 years ago. The process was already completed. You don't need to, to learn the whole process. Right? It's, you know, the same thing as uh, you listen to a conversation. Some friends of yours have a conversation about something. Okay, let's say, should we go or not go on a trip? Right? So, okay, go decide and come back and tell me. You don't want to come back and tell you, I said this, he said that, and then I said this, but then he said that, but then, but that's the way that people talk, especially uh, kids and teenagers. They tell you the whole story. Just cut to the chase, tell me, what is the decision? Right? And then you can do more things. We have, you know, we'll have time. So the intellectual engagement and exercise is beautiful, but sometimes you want to have what is called tachlis. I want to know that, and I don't want to be distracted by dead ends. Um, and it, for, for, for centuries, after the Rif did that, people followed his abridged version, and then uh, in the 13th century, the Talmud had renewed... Uh, Glory, and now everybody studies Talmud. You have to um, to do the Dafyomi and finish the whole Talmud. And if you're not, if you don't know, how will have this uh, uh, understanding that if you don't know Talmud, you cannot be a teacher or a rabbi, which is not true. Especially if you read the introduction of Maimonides to his book of of Halachot Mishneh Torah, where he says exactly, I wrote this book. All you need to know is the Torah and my book. You don't need anything in between. So according to Maimonides, if you know how to read his book, you're good. You could okay. We'll talk about that. So, but we're not we're not dealing with Mishnah or Talmud today, right? So uh, let's go to see what he says about the Agada. Uh, what, what is the acronym of Zion Yom? Oh, his marriage will stand, will protect us forever. Okay. Like this, Zikhuto, Yagen, Aleno, Amen. Like a holy person, so his marriage. Oh, so, Harif Zia, Rabbi Tzach Alfasi, of then the last paragraph is this: Panimas birot la agada, mipne shenit pashta ben hamon, raui la asbiralem al pisichlam. The welcoming approach of the midrash is necessary because it became widespread amongst the people. The rabbis should therefore strive to explain it and bring it closer to their understanding. How do you understand that? What what is it? What what uh, Rabbi Meshach is saying? People like learning. People like learning midrash. It, it's it's we're going back to the same story of what 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 are the genre that people like? Hmm? It's entertaining. It's entertaining, right? Well, also you don't try to you don't try to bring the people up to the text. You bring the text down to the people at their level. Mm-hmm. Their level. Yeah, I think that's a. Good. I was going to say something where it's like you, 
you want to make them experts in something that they have a love for. Mm-hmm. So you you want right? So you want to connect them to something. And I've been both both these, these comments are important because I've seen, I know of communities where midrash has been rejected. You know that when people study because they're. Uh, they love the what we call the the peshat, you know, in the modern sense of the of, of commentary, and they say whenever a midrash is being brought up, oh, this is midrash. Not we, we don't want to deal with that, right? So I agree that sometimes that there are midrashim that we have to criticize and question, like Rivka is three years old, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's arm has been, you know, it was extended. She was really elastic girl, and you know all these things, um, and. Yeah, when she wanted to bring the uh, the, the basket, she just she just extended her hand and got it, and many others like it. But there are many midrashim with very deep messages. If you just say the midrash is not for, and even when the message is not there, but I'll take the midrash and use it and invest it with a new message to uh, to bring it closer to the people, to bring the people closer to to, to it. It's it's valid. It's a legitimate practice. So Rav Meshach says, use it, use it, use it uh, wisely. In a way, I think he says that he's, he's critical of it. You have to be very careful with the way you know, Midrash is written and how you take it. But so when, when you deal with the people, you have to find a, a way to bridge that gap. There are psychological studies, modern psychological studies, that deal with how people reach meanings and oftentimes, stories, myths, are going to be more accessible. People are going to hear things, you know, in a in a way that they, if you just said one hundred percent, another right. way, they it would be agree. You know, a blank face. Right. So. So that's what he's saying, right? Advanced. Right. I mean, or you know, unusually modern in mm-hmm. its in its approach that it's recognizing the way that. That people learn, that right. people that you know are affected mm-hmm. by information. Right. So he, here you have a deep thinker, who's also is an emotional person. Is you, you see the totality of his writings, very sensitive, and really, yeah, he he understood that definitely. Um, there's a, um, I mean, for, I see it on a personal basis when I, I, my daughter still wants me to tell her a bedtime story every night. Mm-hmm. Not always I manage. <laughs> She's nine years old. Uh, I don't always make it, but I think we've probably got like a thousand stories, uh, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, and in many cases, the, the story that I tell her, I ask her, what do you want? It's all about the same protagonist as the bunny queen, that she is the bunny queen. But uh, it's the, it's the, her actions of the day, right? Her concerns, her wishes, and you weave it all in the story. It's a way to... Uh, to access all these and discuss them all indirectly, it's like through a camera. Uh, also, one of the one of the uh, the works that I guided and I recommend reading of, of uh, uh, one of the students, Cecilia um, Sternhurstfeld, who is who does uh, music therapy. She worked with third generation Holocaust survivors, and we worked on the concept of healing through midrash. Mm-hmm. And like you know, you know that. Uh, people heal through the arts, um, through dance, through writing That's poetry. Thesis. Your thesis, music okay. Therapy, yeah. Music therapy, so. Music as therapy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that? There was a, um, 
rabbinical student who did that for a living um, in healing people through music. Maybe that's... But, like, drums and, like, like instruments. What was her name? She didn't graduate last year? Well, I mean, I mean, now people are aware of it, and it has been done, you know, for 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 millennia. This is what people did. Um, people did that, and uh, and so another book that I recommend reading in in that context, when we will talk about it probably more in the future, is uh, it's called "The Myth of the Eternal Return" by uh, Mercha Eliade. Is a Mercha Eliade is a is a philosopher and uh, scholar of, uh, of uh, religion. I think that's how it So, in the myth of the eternal return, yeah, it's a, it's a I think, Romanian name, yeah. Mercha. Um, Eliade wrote an encyclopedia of religions and many, many interesting studies yes. of it. Yes, and uh, but the myth of eternal return is interesting because you could see this um, this idea both in the Torah and the Midrash, and the idea is that there are certain there are certain acts that take place at the time before time, at the uh, primordial time before the creation of the world, and then our actions reenact those uh, those events, and when when you do that, you sort of you connect to something which is uh, beyond beyond you, beyond the natural. So in many cases, you will see this in Midrash, uh, that, for example, when uh, when they say that Abraham brought the, which we discussed on, on Monday, right? Abraham brought the Ugot, which were matzah, to the, to the angels. So his children... Uh, in the in Mitzrayim in Egypt were redeemed and received matzah. But those, this connection over history makes every every uh, every action that we do. So now, when I eat the matzah in modern times, I not only connect to the Exodus, I also connect to Abraham. Uh, when the rabbis say, for example, that a woman has to light candles on Shabbat, even though they they created the mitzvah of lighting candles for Shabbat, but when they say that this is um, a way to make up for uh, the woman's sin in making her husband eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. She put out the light of the world, so now she has to uh, light the light of the world, wow, right? That makes lighting Shabbat candles a penance. Wait, I know. So, <laughs> on one hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, no, no, I, I understand, listen, I, I see that. In one way, you could see this, uh, you know, uh, with that perspective. On the other hand, it's saying that really you have to understand the, the story of the Jewish knowledge allegorically. There was no woman or man or serpent. They were all uh, forces within a human being. Um, but there is a certain fall from the ideal world that God uh, designated for us because we're not, we're not living in a perfect world. That's why we talk about tikkun olam. So if we see... It, uh, each act of lighting candles on Friday night as, as a link in the chain that goes all the way back to creation. And we say, okay, we had, a perfect, we had a perfect world. We got far from it. And now with lighting candles on Shabbat, we're, we're drawing uh, near or going back there. So it, makes, it gives this single act or isolated act a meaning which is far beyond what it really is. And that is a lot of the Midrash does. 
The Midrash tries to reach across generations and history and connect, connect people, connect locations, connect uh, events. And it's very common when you look at Rashi, when you look, when you read Midrash and you search for this kind of connectivity uh, of how an unidentified object or man or, or, or place is identified. And they say, uh, for example, the, uh, the person who came to tell Abraham that his uh, nephew was taken captive was Og, the king of Bashan. And so it doesn't matter if it's true or not, but the, uh, the intention of the author was to connect certain events, to show you that there is continuity. We're not just uh, dealing with isolated uh, things in time. In any case, we'll go back to that. Uh, what Rabbi Mesach is saying, Panimas Gada, because people, and like, uh, like she said, that because people, um, Carolyn said, sorry, because people are so connected to the, to the narrative, to the story, they can identify with it, don't destroy it for them. You know, don't, uh, don't say that Eliyahu Hanavi doesn't exist. It doesn't come to drink the, the wine on, 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 uh, on Pesach. You know, find a way to, uh, to bring it closer to them. Okay, so now we go back in time. The next, the next entry is, and maybe we're not going to do all of them because I want to get into the... Um, um, so this one, you know what, I'll just sum up briefly this, this uh, number three uh, source on page 14. This is from a very important book called uh, The Introduction to the Talmud. It is attributed mistakenly in the, uh, in the printed editions to Rabbi Shmuel Anagid, who lived in the, uh, in the 11th century. Rabbi Shmuel Anagid uh, Ibn Agrila lived in Spain, but it really was written by one of the Gonim, Rabbi Shmuel Ben Hofni Gaon, who lived in the, in the 9th or 10th century. Um, and he says this, that well, he is the first one who refers to the general category of Haggadah, like we, we spoke about Haggadah. He says, all the non-legal parts of the Talmud, of rabbinic literature, Haggadah. And he says, whatever is Halakha, we accept. Whatever is not Halakha, that was their own interpretation. So, those things, we, if, we, if they make sense to us, we accept them. And if they don't, we don't rely on them or we don't, we don't have to accept them. So already in the uh, very uh, um, near to the, uh, to the editing, what we consider to be the editing of the Talmud, 100, 200 years later, one of the Gonim says, listen, the, the, the halakha, yes, you should rely on. The non-halakha part of the Talmud, not binding. Um, and... The same is in, in, uh, in source number four. This is a Sefer HaShkol, um, medieval source, but he collects, he's, a, he's like an anthology of writings from the Geonim. Um, and the, his, first, uh, his first paragraph is, is important. Amar Mar Rav Sherira, he calls Rav Sherira, who was one of the Geonim, uh, the last, uh, one of the last Geonim in the, in the 11th century. Hanem milei de nafkei mi pesukei, Says matters which are derived from verses and are named people call them midrash and agada are only an assumption. Some are true, many are not. How different is this from what the Hazonish says? 
that it's all prophecy and uh, divine inspiration. It says, it says, it's not true. Enan kach. So why is it that we have them? I mean, he says, Vehem yizkiru da'ato shel kol ehad vehad. They recorded all opinions. Ve'anu lefisichlo yehol al ish. He quotes a pasuk from the Tanakh, from Mishnei. A man is praised by his wisdom. Meaning, you should use common sense. This is this is your real this is your real uh, uh, praise or gift, right? This is what you have to use. Um, and then at the end, oh, we skip to the last uh, paragraph, and he says, "This is the rule that uh, Rav Hai, Rav Shira's father, says. Uh, those included in the Talmud are more refined than others." Even so, if Agadai Midrash and the Talmud cannot be understood or clarified, we should not rely on them. So he makes one distinction. He says, the Midrash and Agadah, which was not included in the Talmud, are of a lesser category than those that made it into the Talmud. But even those which are in the Talmud, we only rely on them if they make sense. We still use critical thinking. So... Uh, this is this is the uh, the approach of the early scholars, the Geonim of uh, Babylonia, and now we move to Spain, 13th century. That is Rabbi Moshe ben Nahman, Nahman it is, in one of his disputations. You know the history of the disputations. Um, so, and we call them disputes. Pablo Cristiani. Pablo Cristiani, um, and. Uh, there were two two converts from Judaism to Christianity that caused a lot of problems to Jews in uh, medieval Spain. One was Pablo Cristiani, with which Nahmanides uh, argued. Um, the other one was uh, Raimondo Martini, who wrote a book called Pugio Fidei, the, the Dagger of Faith. And in Pugio Fidei, he, I think it was before, if I'm not wrong, before uh, Cristiani, in Pugio Fidei, he collected all the statements from the Talmud that he thought were provocative or anti-Christian. And it was a revolution. I mean, he sent shockwaves throughout the Christian world because up until this point, the Christians didn't know that we have oral law. I mean, the fathers of the church knew that we have Midrash and like an interpretation of the Bible, but they were really unaware of the depth and breadth of what we have in the Talmud. And they thought that we are the people of the book in the sense of there we, we deal with the Bible. And he was able to get all these annoying statements from uh, from the Talmud. One of the famous ones is the uh, the dispute that went around the the, the oven, the famous oven of Achnai, and where God says, Nitzhuni Banai, my, my children won the argument by telling me that they don't have to listen to me. So we as Jews, we embrace it. Wow, you see, we could argue with God. We could defy God. We don't care. Even, even God has to listen to us, right? In the Christian world, it didn't fly that well. Because there's the concept of infall- uh, infallibility, the word of God. You have to listen. You have to obey. Total obedience. And they were going around saying, see, the Jews wouldn't even accept the, the, the word of their own God. Of course, they rejected the Son of God and just intensified the myth of uh, the Jews as the killers of God and the demonization of the Jews. Ramban was called, Moshe ben Haman was called to defend um, Judaism. 
and he managed, he did it pretty well, but as a result, since he sort of won the argument, he had to run away. That's if you if you lose, we kill you. If you win, you get to go go away. Uh, after but after the, his dispute, the the Catholic kings realized that they are holding a. It was all in the, within the law, of course, nothing illegal. Um, but what they did, they started creating more and more. Uh, uh, public competition and disputations, and they would bring all the rabbis and all the scholars to the to the royal court. And meanwhile, the communities were falling apart, and that was uh, the beginning of the demise of Spanish Jewry. Anyway, in his uh, in this disputation, this particular point of the dispute, Pablo Cristiani challenges Nahmanides with a midrash that seems to predict or to speak about the birth of Jesus. I don't know if you know the Midrash. It's the Midrash about a man who was plowing um, on the night of Tisha B'Av when the temple is uh, destroyed. And, uh, and he heard the, uh, the news about the birth of the Mashiach. And so basically, it was, let me see, your Talmud accepts that Jesus was born on, the, on that night and there is a Mashiach and so on. So Ramban says, I don't believe it. I do not believe in this book. So you're Jewish, no, you did some part of your literature. How can you say that you do not believe it? So let's let's read it. Um, anyone wants to read the Hebrew? Josh, okay. Biblia, yeah. Ramban spoke Spanish. Emunash Lema. Second is called the Talmud, it is a commentary of the laws of the Torah. We believe in it in what concerns the laws. In, in what meaning? Um, only the only the, the Halakha part of the Talmud, right? Not the Agada. Like Rav Shmuel ben Hofni Gaon, the same kind, yes. Od yesh lanu Ceremonies. That's his point, yeah. yeah. Um, so we have a third book called Midrash, uh, meaning well, that we've called sermons. Kemo, Shi'im, Yamod, Yamod. Hegemon. Is that like a Greek? Yeah. Hegemony. Oh, Hegemony is, uh, is, is a, a little authority. So Hegemon was the word for cardinal or, or patriarch. The Yaseh Sermon, the Echad Min Shonim, Hayato, Beinav, the Katuvo. Katuvo, yeah. It is this a preacher delivered a sermon, and one of the listeners liked it and wrote it down. <laughs> okay. It's very, very important. The this okay. Um, 
וזה הספר, מי שיאמין בו טוב ומי שלא יאמין בו לא יזיק. אוקיי. זה ספוק, אם אתם מאמינים בו, אם לא, אין לך. אין לך. אין לך. אין settlement you could say which is in Germany in Cologne starting the 9th century uh, where Jews were really imported from Italy and then uh, yeah. the community grew and only later in like in the 10th century you find uh, centers of Torah there yeah my grandmother who I've um, I'm three quarters German and most of my families from Germany but my grandmother like about a year ago she's like I just want to let you know oh by the way that we have our ancestors way 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 back yeah. that were from Spain that were yeah. from Spain so yes. I was like I had no you know that I had no idea that you have Spanish yes. blood so it must have anyway a lot of yeah most of the most of our Jews spilled into uh, you know to yes. Europe mm-hmm. yeah Germany also so what do you see with the, with this uh, statement of Nahmanides you said that you love the way he says like the the preacher delivered a sermon one of those that liked it and wrote it down so what what is going on here so I'll tell you but before we say that that scholars today, I mean scholars within the Orthodox world, commentators, Shevel, uh, who, wrote, who wrote this uh, critical edition of, uh, of Ramban, um, people argue that this is not what Ramban believes in, that he said it for the sake of the argument. He said, because they have a problem, they have a dilemma. Ramban says, I do not accept uh, Midrash uh, without, without criticism, right? Which is in line with what the, the Geonim said, right? Others like pre-Ashkenazi or early Sephardic rabbis say, but it doesn't it doesn't go in line with the uh, the mentality of the Litvak or you know the European yeshiva world. So they're trying to reconcile it. They say, oh, Ramban wrote it only for the sake of because Pablo Christiani attacks him and says, you hear, I have a proof that Jesus uh, uh, was accepted by the midrash. Says, no, I don't accept this midrash. I don't. What what else do you want him to say? This is their argument. What would you answer to that? Is it's a good argument, right? It's a good argument. Okay. So, but before we go to... You're saying that the, the Litvaks would argue that... That, that... the Litvaks would argue this is not true. This is just for... This is, that's what he told them. 
he really believes in every single word of the midrash. Right. So but when he when he deals with the uh, with the goyim, you know, well, it's what's like. What's the problem if it's not true? No, because we know. We, I want to know what this Ramban. Is my response. Oh, this I want to know what Ramban what Ramban really believed in. It's going to be hard to know that. Maybe I can't tell. <laughs> I want to. I want to try. So as a like, take so it from a lawyer's point this of view. It's all a farce that he's making this up. That's what they the claim, right? Just better. to just. He's lying under oath to uh, protect his. People. So I have to counter arguments for that. One is context. This is this is the man. The the disputations are printed from Rambam's manuscript. If Rambam made the argument only. For the only in court, only in order to repel the the argument of the of the of the convert, he would not have written it down because it might would have been misinterpreted. He would have written here, "This is what I told him," or like to qualify it as, "Don't don't think that's what I believe in," but that's not good enough because you could still say he had to write it down for future generations to have the uh, the proper answer. So I think that the the way that he particularly phrased the process of creation of Midrash is important. He did not say that the Hegemon, the rabbi, wrote the sermon, but rather... Delivered a sermon. Right? And it's a two-stage two, uh, two process. First, the, first, someone delivers a sermon, then someone else writes it down. Like after Shabbos. After Shabbos, maybe, right. But meaning that there's a time lapse. Not only right, there's time lapse first, and there's also the concept of change, what we yeah. call lost in translation. There's lost in translation, there's lost in transition. This is lost in transition. Um, for some, first of all, some elements are lost. Second, maybe things were not meant to be written. They were delivered only for that particular time yeah, and place and a group of people. When a sermon is delivered, it's not, right. it is addressing a certain, you know, you know your audience, uh, you know the times, sometimes you reflect upon the times. Yes. It's very contextual. Exactly. It's not, it's not, and the word here, I think, is... Well. Exactly. And I think the word is Ya'amud. Ya'amud is to stand up. It's almost like extemporaneous. It's, it's only for that uh, context. It doesn't, it doesn't go beyond that. And this is one of the principles that is going to guide us as we go to Midrash. We will try to learn the Midrash in context and to see whether the message that the original Midrash delivered is applicable today or has it been distorted, has it been misunderstood. Um, so many things happen in between, you, you realize, between, uh, because I gave you the two, right, the two ends of the spectrum. Like early literature, if you look at the Talmud, and if you look at the Gaonim, and if you look at the early uh, rabbis of Spain, they all say they are all very uh, skeptical about the, uh, the the Midrash. They say you have to take it with a grain of salt. You have to criticize, analyze, question. Uh, don't like it. Don't take it literally. Then you come to the, to modern times, and the Hazoni says it's all prophecy. And then you have the other the other voice of reason that says no. That we keep this tradition of. So, what happened in between that the midrash became solidified and sanctified into this, uh, uh, into our uh, um, holy codex? Right? What happened? So, I mean, we could we could document it through references of different books throughout the ages, but uh, in general, it was a reaction 
to the uh, to assimilation or to the assault of outside culture. So, Rambam introduces Greek philosophy through the Guide of the Perplexed. There's a there's a backlash. Rabbis and and leaders write letters against it. The books of the Rambam are being burned in in the twelve hundred the. Uh, uh, 1200s. Then, in the 1300s, the all the, the because of those kind of argument in our inside arguments in uh, in Judaism, uh, it's called the burning of the Talmud in Paris in the 13 in the 1300s. Uh, some say that around 10,000 volumes of manuscripts were burnt by whom? By the government, because they said that, that it contains heresy. So and when was this? Uh, 1340s, two I think. But thirteen hundreds, um, and just like we, we said that you know the the potential of the midrash to be very flexible and 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 even volatile, the uh, the rabbis, in some ways, were afraid that by questioning certain parts of the midrash, you're going to question other parts of 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 the Torah. So they were they promoted an agenda of. Uh, that you cannot you cannot question or reject anything, so now they had to uh, because of that they made they make this statement, so they have to defend it. So how do they defend it by creating commentaries? So the more you create commentaries, this now to untangle them and to say that the midrash doesn't work becomes more difficult, because they, oh but you know this. Uh, um, you you you, you uh, use symbolism and later on mysticism and allegory and all that. And Maharal of Prague was one of the uh, the masters of this uh, of this approach. So, and they identified anyone who questioned the midrash was considered a someone who wants to really hurt, Jews. hurt Judaism, not just midrash, but eventually all all Jewish literature. Were they afraid people were going to convert out, or that they would be persecuted? The people who are just or? going to quit quit the religion altogether, or convert to Christianity. depends on, depends on where you live. Um, but definitely, you could say that the reaction towards religion was different in Islamic countries and Christian countries. Yeah, sure. That was definitely, if you say Sephardic and Ashkenazi, to me, you know, people ask. Uh, is it because you know your your ancestor came from Spain? I said maybe some of them did, some of them didn't. Doesn't really matter. We're talking about the ideology, and the ideology is really uh, that which uh, ideology which developed under the crescent and under the cross. Under Islam, Islam, believe it or not, used to be a more tolerant religion. I mean, even now with all the problems that are going around in the world, still the number of casualties of Islam. Throughout history, is is smaller than the number of casualties of Christianity, uh, and Christianity just stopped being a fanatic or a violent religion only recently. And even now, in uh, in Africa, you know the uh, evangelical right is using doing what they cannot do here, and they persecute uh, the LGBT community in a violent, in a very violent way, a very dangerous way. If you 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 Google, you know what's happening there. So. Uh, but that was that was part of the problem with the early communities. The other problem was that for uh, Jews who lived under Christianity, they are they are dealing with idolatry. For them, Christianity is idolatry. First, because the the Christians believe in the in the Holy Trinity, 
which is not, they cannot understand is monotheism. Second, because there's very, very strong imagery of statues everywhere. Um, so they, they recoil from it and, and shut themselves in the ghetto. Whereas uh, Judaism, you don't, Islam doesn't have imagery. The prayers are similar, the language is similar. There's monotheism is, an, is a concept. Jews are not accused of being the killers of God. And you don't have this imagery also of the ecclesia or the, the church as the conqueror and Judea capta under its feet. You know, and you can see it in the Gothic ecclesia, churches. Synagogue. synagogue and ecclesia, right. It used to be uh, the Rome and, and Judea, then it became the synagogue and, and, the, and the church. So uh, the, the, our culture was uh, influenced by our interaction and reaction to what was happening around us. So, um, with that being said, it's like let's. This is a. Um, there's more. There's more to be said about the uh, the development of the attitude to midrash, but we've seen the ends of the spectrum. On one hand, those who say we only accept that which makes sense. We have those who say try to interpret it as possible as allegory, symbolism, uh, or any way possible, and those who say we accept every word of the midrash, literally. It's 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 divine and it's literal. So, um, any questions about that? That's not, okay. So, very good. So let's 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 continue to number four. Now, um, we are going to talk about agada as a pedagogical tool, and with uh, with two cases. One is the case of Abraham's circumcision, and the other one, hopefully, we'll have time to deal with with Esther and Mordechai. Uh, a happy couple, meaning like I know some. Did you did you ever hear that they were married? Okay, mm-hmm. they accepted. Not really. No. Okay. Good. <laughs> okay. So you're of the category of uh, you know what Rabban says. It's uh, you shouldn't. Okay. So um, this this whole story of Abraham is is um, sort of a research that I was doing on on uh, on midrash, and it was sparked by my uh, being really very uncomfortable with certain commentaries um, in the Torah. So it's not here, but I originally start with Rashi. Um, Rashi says that when, when, the, uh, when the men appeared to Abraham to tell him that, uh, that God is going to destroy Sodom and that he's going to have a child, they appeared to him in the terebinths of Mamre. Or the plains of Mamre, you know, in the old uh, books they used to to translate the word Elone Mamre, the terebinths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was terrible because I don't know what, what it means. I have no idea. I don't know what phylacteries are. Exactly, yeah. terebinths, phylacteries, and tabernacles. Is Tabernacle, all, yeah, tabernacles, right? So, but it's good, you know. People say, "What is it? it's terebinth?" Okay, it's like I'm not going to argue I'm with you. I'm not going to ask again. again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so why the terebinths of Mamre? Rashi says because Mamre is the one who gave him an advice to do the the Mila. I'm going to refer to it now from on the, as Mila, not bris or circumcision. I like it. Okay. So he's the one that got that, that told him you should do the Mila. And I said, what, what do you mean by that? And the, and you keep reading Rashi. I mean, read it as a, as, a, as a kid and then revisit it every time I study Bereshit or taught Bereshit. And, and Rashi says that Abraham wasn't sure if he should do it. And he went to ask around his friends whether he should do it or not. And so this is a little disturbing. Especially because 
His friends are not Jews. They're, his and friends are not Jews. Or and or whatever. He's questioning right away God's uh, command. Yes, and it's also because there is another incident, uh, instance where he's being told to do something and he doesn't question God. Oh, with his son. With his son. So, God tells you to sacrifice your son, no problems. God tells you to circumcise yourself, I'm not so sure about it. How do you understand that? And it's not in the text. So this. No, because Abraham is known as the most obedient out of all of our forefathers. Right. And that would digress. That would be something that would be out of the ordinary right. for Abraham. It would make sense if it were maybe another patriarch, but as one who defines Abraham as the one who listens to um, every one of God's um, requirements or, or um, you know. Um, follows along with and accepts, mm-hmm. willingly accepts um, everything that God asks of him. It just would seem to be um, not in his character to do that. It's not right. a characteristic that we define um, Abraham by. Right. So it's not in line with Abraham's personality. It's true. Abraham does usually whatever Hashem. The only time he argues with God is when he, try, when he tries to save the people of Sodom, right? Mm-hmm. Or when he tries to save his son. Also, he's not happy with sending him away. Yeah, but this is not, I mean, no one's in jeopardy. So right. No, well, a little bit. Yeah, sending your son to the desert is a... Uh, so, but, but no, it's in line with what you said. Uh, Avraham is concerned about the, the well-being of other people, and here all of a sudden, um, he's questioning God. Um, so, let's see the first uh, entry here. N- source number one is from Genesis Rabbah, the Midrash Rabbah on Bereshit. And... Um, here, it starts like we mentioned before with a, with a verse from Mishlei, "Lakol zman ve'at lechol hefetz tahat hashamayim." It starts from Kohelet uh, to each to each his time or its time. Zman hayalo le'Avraham ematay shenitnalo mila. God wanted the mila to be given to Avraham at a designated time, not earlier, not later. It's not a very convenient time. He was 80, 80, uh, 86 years old. Not a good time to do a brit milah. Amar, im havivai hamilah, mipneima lo nitna le'adam arishon. So Abraham's response, oh, if you really think the milah is so great, why didn't you give it to Adam? Or in other words, what is it? Why are you giving it to me? Why okay. me? <laughs> why me? Okay. He says, why me? Give it to Adam, right? He's the... Oh, you gave him the mitzvah of eating or not eating the fruit. I could have done that. <laughs> right? Okay. So, Amarul HaKadosh Baruch Hu Avraham. We'll go back and revisit this, this statement. So, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Tez Avraham, Daicha, enough. Ani ve'ata ba'olam. It's a show, it's showdown. It's, you know, it's, it's high notes. It's only, it's only, there's no one else there. It's Abraham and God. It's only, yeah, I was thinking about exactly this too. Uh, so it's like, really, Abraham says, forget, there's no one else here. It's me or you. Like, it's my word or your word. It's very, very uh, dramatic. Uh, God throws down the gauntlet. Yes. It says, Im mekabel alecha limol, If you don't accept my word, adkan. I had enough for this world. I'm done. I'm going to destroy it. 
I'm not happy that no one wants to do, that you are not willing to do the mitzvah of circumcision. Therefore, I'm going to destroy the world. The, the end of the world has come. It's just so hard for me to see God as such a drama queen. Okay. Yeah, well, like, how is he going to be affected, right? Why would God care? Okay, very good. Good question. Let's give the question and, and, and move on to the next uh because this really is a whole comp- a whole uh, a thing that we have to look at. So now, look at this is a, also from Bereshit Abba. Um, Lily, you want to read? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, in Hebrew? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when God told Abraham to circumcise, he went and consulted his three friends. Amar lo... Anel. Aner kvar ben... Oh. Mea, yeah. Um, <laughs> You're almost a hundred years old, yeah? Ve'atah olech ben... Metzair. Metzair et atzmech. Aner told him, you are already a hundred years old. Why should you cause yourself pain? Amar lo echshol ma... Mm-hmm. Um, said, why are you marking yourself among your enemies? Mm-hmm. That's it. So, anyway, what, what do we what do we see with the uh, with this story? He goes and he consults his three friends, and like Shir uh, mentioned before, it's very strange. Why would you consult your non-Jewish friend whether to do the Beit Milah or not? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, there is. To be fair, there is something that we could call the mm-hmm. the foothold in the Tanakh. The Midrash always look. Remember, I, you know that I mentioned that in order to make it um, um, reliable or, or uh, acceptable, uh, that we look for a foothold in the text. The problem is when you when you do have this foothold in the text, you want to know that it really uh, sanctions the interpretation, meaning that it really is there for that purpose. So just before God commands Avraham, sorry, after, he tells him to do the Brit Milah, no, sorry, before, sorry, sorry, uh, God, Avraham goes to the war against the, the four kings to save his uh, nephew from Sodom, right? And he calls his allies, Aner Eshkolu Mamre. And the Torah calls them in chapter 14, verse 13, Ba'alei Berit Avraham. They made a pact with Avram. Pact, Brit, Brit Milah, right? Therefore, they are connected to the Brit of Avram. Beautiful. What Not Genesis 14.13. What is the problem with that nice connection? A, right? Two, yeah, <laughs> also. It's it's a, you cannot do exhaustion over there. It means a military pact, 
right? right? And it's a pet with Avram, and here is the pet, but and also, according to this midrash, how many of those three allies are his allies on the yeah. circumcision? Only one, only one. Only one. Oh. Two of them are against it, so you can't call all of them the allies of the berit of Milah. So, this is this is the uh, the sort of like the the. The hook in the in in the in the text. So what was it? It was Genesis. Yeah, Genesis fourteen thirteen. Fourteen thirteen. Okay. Well, but since it's in the in the they're all brothers. Yes. So right, they're brothers. Um And then immediately after Abraham hears that his brother was taken Interesting also, right. And 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 the breed is this kind of, of a really this kind of alliance where it's the bro code. Yes, yes, yes. You, you, I, I will protect you if you're attacked, and you'll protect me if I'm attacked. It's a tribal thing, definitely. Okay, one more source. But that was a Gezerah Shava, right? Sort of a Gezerah Shava, yes. Sort of, okay. I mean, sort of because Gezerah Shava technically is only for Halakha. Oh, okay. It's only for Halakha, it's not supposed to be used for... Um, okay, oh. for Agada. So now let's read source number three. Lily, you want to read one, one more there? Sure. Amar. Amar ad shalom malti. Malti hayu ha'ovrim v'hashavim v'im etzli. He said, before I circumcised, travelers would come to me. Amar lo ha'kadosh baruchu ad shalom malta hayu b'nei adam arelim v'im God told him, before you circumcised, the uncircumcised would come and visit you. Now it is I and my entourage whom you view. So... What is going on here? This also this also appears in the in the story, in uh, Rashi's commentary. Remember that Abraham, Abraham is sitting at the tent. Mm-hmm. So according to the simple meaning of the text, it says Yosef petah ahuel kehomayom. He sits at the, the at the uh, okay. because it was hot, meaning that when it's hot, it's good to sit at the you know at the opening of the tent. For the breeze. If you're inside, you're locked. If you sit there, you get the shade of the tent plus the breeze that goes through. So this is a good place to sit. The Midrash and Rashi, you see it uh, conversely. They say, even though it was hot, he was sitting outside. Why was he sitting outside? Because he was waiting for guests. But guests were not coming. Why they were not coming? I mean, this is all like, you know, a lot of the lion of the story of the Midrash. They were not coming because God was concerned about Abraham's health. And didn't want him to be bothered with guests, but when he saw that Abraham is so is so uh, devoted to hospitality that he sits there, he sent the three men. But before those three men, who are angels, come, Abraham is already frustrated, and he says, malti, What's going on? No one is coming to visit me. What did I do wrong? Oh, I know what I did wrong. I did the brit milah. So now. This adds like now, so Abraham uh, is not happy when God tells him to do it. Then he goes and asks his non-Jewish friends whether he should do it or not. And even after he does it, he second guesses God. No, I, I should not have done it. 
And God says, no, no, well, now I'm going to come visit you. You should be happy. So, what was the motivation of the rabbis to make these three little thingies? Were people that, is the correct, that is the correct question, by the way. Not what is the problem in the text, but why did the rabbis create it? Right, this is the perfect question. Because we realize that the rabbis had an agenda. They're putting here, they're, uh, how, do you, how would you say they're building a case for Abraham? Mm-hmm. Right? They're framing him. Oh, against. For something. They're building against, a case against, against not for Abraham. Right. Against Abraham. They're framing him. They want, but they, he's going he's gonna to win eventually. Don't worry, right? But they're doing something to Abraham. They present him as someone who questions God, who's not happy with the mitzvot. Who's who's not, using him as an example. As an example. For whom? Who? who? The community. Of the community. Right. Which community? Doubters. The one they were serving. And what do those people doubt? Whether they should circumcise themselves or their sons. So not generally about the mitzvot, but about milah specifically. Milah. Okay. So now... So they're living in a culture where people are not circumcising their sons, and they're starting to say, why are we doing this repair thing is, to our kids? Right. So they're... It's not San Francisco. What is it? <laughs> I mean, it, it happens, right? right? Generation. Are they in... Why would they... Why, why, would it, why would all of a sudden the rabbis have to confront this problem where people say... I'm not so sure about the circumcision. What what was the the sparking? What was what was the what was the the um, the catalyst in in society? What was the change in Jewish society that would bring this about? And we spoke about in general, what well, Hellenism? Oh, oh, the, the oh perfection of the body. Perfection of the body. The, the body is perfect. If your body is blemished, then. Uh, and if you're naked everywhere in, in Hellenistic Greece, then everyone's seeing all your parts. Yes. So we have, a, we have two problems. One, the body is worshipped and the body has to be perfect to the extent that uh, in Athens and in Sparta, even in Athens also, babies who were imperfect were abandoned in the field. And if you were circumcised, that therefore meant that you were imperfect. Exactly. In essence, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a sin to circumcise. And also, if you want to assimilate, but let's did, say... But let's, did Hellenism have the concept of sin? Uh, no, it's a sin for a Jew to circumcise. I mean, if he takes the, the concept of... Uh, uh, I'm sure, I'm, I think that the, yeah, the Greeks have a concept of sin. And the sin against the gods. Right? Mm-hmm. Tantalus, uh, uh, was who, who's the one who stole the, uh, the fire from the god? I think it was Tantalus, right? Anathema to the philosophy. Of Greek philosophy, right? That the body is perfect. Yes, it, definitely. So it would be insulting, right? But it presents another problem, like you said, that you know, uh, the the um, athletic competition, the gymnasium, everybody's naked, completely naked. So now, uh, if you wanted to assimilate, let's say, which happened in the past, before Greek, uh, before Hellenism, Hellenism invaded Israel. You could have done. You you could do that. You could pass. You could pass. You could pretend to be non-Jewish. Mm-hmm. You but, can't pass anymore. Not right. In Greece. Yeah. So now parents have this dilemma: Am I going to circumcise my son or not? Am I going to brand him for the rest of his life? Right. And people also have people who are already circumcised and grew up and in in Greek society. Now, if they could have, they would have reversed the process. Right, so I, I always I also see this living amongst 
I mean, Jews living in a Hellenistic period in which they wanted to somewhat assimilate and be, like, part of that community. I can understand somebody writing this from that perspective. And also, I feel like our perspective or, you know, trying to not maybe subconsciously, but we try to, like, appease um, people that we speak with. Like, so, for example, I feel like I'm, like, on both spectrums, like, speaking with Orthodox and then speaking with, like, you know, totally reform. And the way that I speak to, like, Orthodox is totally opposite of, like, the way I speak to reform. And maybe that's kind of part of that. um, I prayed for a girl so I wouldn't have to do that. That's the Midrash. You're right. I think, no, Stephanie's right also in the sense that uh, the rabbis, whoever wrote this Midrash, that's not necessarily what he believes in, but rather he is using it as to promote a certain agenda. So we could see either those are the people who are against the Brit Mila, or there's something else here. But let's let's continue. Let's see one more. That's uh, one more source. Um, so this. Shal Tornus Rufus Harashat Rabbi Akiva. His name was Tinius Rufus, but in, in our sources it became it was a real. Real character. It's a crazy name. He was the governor at the time of Rabbi Akiva. He's the one who uh, who uh, fought against the Jews in the Great Rebellion, in, in the Bar Kokhva Rebellion. And uh, Tinius Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva, Which are better, God's or man's handiwork? God's or man's handiwork? Oh. The handiwork of a uh, man. Here are the heaven and the earth and the earth can do something similar. Don't speak of something which is beyond our power. Of course I cannot create heaven and earth. If you want a competition, look at the where where this fair fair competition. Why are you circumcised? Amarlo, Afaniati Yodea, Shata Atid Lomarli Ken, Lechachik Damti Vamarti, Maseba Sarvadam, and Naim Shakatosh Bauchu. I knew they were going to say it, and that's why I already told you that our work is better. Hevilo Shibolim Ugluskaot. So Abiakiva brought, he asked for uh, wheat in, in, in the stalks and, and, uh, and cakes to be brought forth. What is better? Would you rather eat the the grains or eat the processed food made by humans? So it's an interesting argument. It's a beautiful argument, and it's also vis- it's visual. It's it's practical. So Tornus comes with a new argument. It's refined. Yes, refined the flour is yeah. If God wanted you to be circumcised, He should have created you circumcised. So, why would you have to have the umbilical cord? Let Him be born without the umbilical cord. You cut off God gave the mitzvot to us in order to purify us. Meaning it's a test, it's a trial, it's not easy. Like you said, you, you, you're you happy you had a girl, so you didn't have to go through the uh, circumcision. I 
I was afraid. I, I me too. I was a sandak for my firstborn, and uh, and I was holding the baby on the pillow, mm-hmm. and at the I certain point, and I, I think so. And then the the more rebuked me, she says, oh, "What what is going? What, what happened?" So I almost dropped the baby. I was so nervous, I'm like this. <laughs> so. Uh, so Okay, so we'll stop here for us to take a, a short break and we'll come back and we analyze those uh, Mikot. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.